Chapter 9. Who protects the family? And how? In the course of this book, over and over again, I've stressed that God owns the family and has entrusted sacred privileges to it. Many of these responsibilities belong only to the family and not to the other institutions of society. But we're so used to thinking of the state as a parent of the family, parenti parents, which is precisely what the state wants us to think, that we're left wondering how anything gets accomplished if the state does not hold this parental position. For example, in the last chapter, we talked about education. For over 100 years, our nation has allowed the state to set compulsory education laws. Why? Good question. Have they been successful? We've reached new lows of literacy. Have these state compulsory laws been effective? Have they worked? Obviously not. Let's forget about the state's ability, let alone right, to protect the education of the family. The state has miserably failed in this area. I don't think it means that the state has no role of protection at all, but when it comes to education, it's not the guardian. So, with good cause, we're left asking, quote, who protects the family and how, end quote. Is the family just left to fend for itself? Before I attempt to answer these questions, let's consider a case that will introduce several of the points I want to make. The Quinlan case in the late 1970s, you may remember an important series of trials that made it all the way to the Supreme Court. The Karen Ann Quinlan case. What were the issues? Karen Ann Quinlan was a young girl who became comatose through a tragic set of circumstances. She could only be kept alive by machines. The parents wanted to turn the equipment off because they thought she had already died. By law, the doctors could not allow such a thing. The family took the matter to court. They basically argued along two lines. One, Karen had made a, quote, living trust, unquote, with the family that if she ever became incapacitated to such an extent that she could only be kept alive by machines, they were instructed to have them turned off. It seems that in February of 1974, the father of a friend of Karen Ann Quinlan was dying of cancer. Karen, in discussion with her mother, Julia Quinlan, her sister, Mary Ellen, and her friend, Laurie Gaffney, made statements to the effect that if she were suffering from a terminal illness, she would not wish her life to be prolonged through the futile use of extraordinary medical measures, end quote. Two, the family also argued that the trust was sacred. Karen held her belief because the church to which she belonged, Catholic, allowed extraordinary means for sustaining life to be turned off. How did the court rule? First, as to the living trust argument, Judge Muir said, quote, The preciseness of Karen Ann's state of mind is suggested to be the thing that must be an issue. And it's suggested that this is too remote, that there's no continuity of intent, and that there are different fact situations, making it something that is not an issue. In other words, the court would not honour the statements that Karen made because it could not establish continuity or a relationship between them and what actually happened to her. 
the living trust concept was rejected. Second, the sacred trust approach didn't work either. Summarizing the court, it said that although the family's wishes were in general harmony with the Roman Catholic community, no specific covenant was made in the church. If there had been, then it would have been a different matter. What does this tell us? What does this tell us? The state assumes the role of parent above the family. Something has to change that role, something that has just as much power as the state, even though it may not be the same kind of power, namely the church. In Richard Fenn's Liturgies and Trials, he concludes about the Quinlan case, quote, The ability of an individual to challenge effectively the authority of a social system also depends on whether the individual's faith, however traditional or ancient it may be, is spoken with the authority of a particular religious community and not of the person alone. End quote. The church is the institution that beca- the church is the institution that has become a sleeping giant in our society. If it raised its head, the state would have a difficult time maintaining that it was the parent of the family. Does this mean, however, that the state has no rightful place in the protection of the family? No, but its role has become confused. When it protects, it protects the wrong way. How about the church? It's just as confused. It cowers in the corners of society, afraid to lose its 501c3 status as tax-exempt. Actually, churches are automatically tax-exempt, so, by law, they do not have to file for any grant of privilege under Section 501c3 of the Internal Revenue Code. A lot of them file anyway. What about the family? Cases like the Quinlan's demonstrate the need for shrewdness. Where does this leave us? We're really touching on the fourth principle of the covenant, sanctions. How so? The state abuses its sanctioning power on the family instead of protecting it the proper way. So, in our day and time, the family should understand who and how protection is provided. The Bible says that each institution, church, family and state, protects the family in a special but not the same way. This chapter is an attempt to present fresh biblical information to clarify each institution's role in protecting the family. The Church The Church protects the family in a unique fashion. The institutional church could rightly be called the, quote, guardian of the family, end quote. Paul says, quote, honour widows who are really widows, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Now, she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day, but she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. And these things command that they may be blameless, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man, well reported for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, 
if she has diligently followed every good work, but refuse the younger widows. For when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation, because they have cast off their first faith. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully, for some have already turned aside after Satan. If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them, and do not let the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who are really widows. End quote. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 3 to 16. The church, not the state, is given the responsibility of taking care of widows. Set instructions are given. Disbursements are not to be given non-discriminately. Widows have to be a certain age and should have demonstrated their faithfulness. The biblical system is not a blind handout approach. Quote, if someone will not work, then he doesn't eat, unquote. But why is the church given the role of protecting and providing for the family? Redemptive history. The biblical history of the family sheds light on the church's role. Let's start with Genesis. The first family was told to, quote, subdue the earth, end quote. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Did they do what they were told? No. Adam and Eve failed and were judged, but God redeemed them. He sacrificed animals that provided atonement or covering, quote, As for Adam and his wife, the Lord made tunics of skin and clothed them, end quote. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. The family would have been lost if God had not provided redemption and pulled it back up into the kingdom of God. Throughout the entire Old Testament, this story repeats itself. The family falls, is judged, and redeemed. Each time the message is, the human family cannot save the world. A new family is needed. When you come to the time of Christ, the Gospels speak as though there is a conflict between the family and Christ. On one occasion, Jesus says, quote, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but the sword. For I have come to set man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. End quote. Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 39. Was Jesus doing away with the family? No. At another point in his ministry, he restored a man's child to him. It is the account of Jairus' daughter. Quote, and behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be healed, and she will live. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed him to scorn. But 
When he had put them all out, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Tylithai kumai, which is translated, Little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was twelve years of age. End quote. Mark chapter 5 verses 21 to 42. This healing is a symbol of resurrection. Notice the text says she arose, verses 41 and 42. This is resurrection language. Jesus' resurrection brings healing, but in this case, it is the resurrection stroke healing of the family. So, how do we reconcile the fact that Jesus divides, yet he also resurrects the family? Just as we saw in the case of Adam and Eve, the family doesn't possess the power to save itself. This does not mean, however, that the family is done away with. No, redemption restores the family through God's family. After the cross, God's household is the source of life for the human family. The church, God's family, is given guardianship over the members' families, taking care of widows and orphans, and even providing education for families who are too poor to educate their own. Hence, churches have a legitimate biblical place in the area of education. The state does not have this kind of role. It cannot provide salvation for the family, nor is it supposed to assume for itself a role that belongs to the church. But what about the state? Does this mean the state has nothing to do with the well-being of the family? No. The state. The state is to protect the family by implementing the death penalty for the crime specified in the Bible. How would this help the family? Have you considered how capital offence crimes in the Bible are all virtually a direct attack on the family? Consider this as you read the Apostle Paul's list of death penalty crimes. Quote, Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their heart to dishonour their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of this error which was due. And, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them, end quote, Romans chapter 1, verses 24 to 27. The little phrase, worthy of death, says it all. We know this means the death penalty because Paul used the same phrase when he was accused of blasphemy. He said he had done nothing. Quote, 
worthy of death, unquote, meaning the death penalty. Acts chapter 25, verse 11. Consider the effect these death penalties could have on family life in America. Murderers would be condemned to die. Molesters would be put to death, which would mean the porn industry would die because there would not be any market. Abortion would be stopped. Looked at in this light, is the Bible unmerciful when it speaks of death penalty crimes this way? No. The state's responsibility is to see that God's laws are applied. Its responsibility is not education, not welfare, not housing, not printing money, not 90% of what it does. All these things have been proven to hurt the family. What's killing the family are the thieves and thugs in and outside of government. But how about the family itself? Is there anything it can do to guard against all the attacks on it? The family. Yes, the family can protect itself, but it needs... But it'll need to be shrewd. I don't mean illegal, but crafty in its dealings with the civil government. It will have to know the law better than the government. There is a good biblical example. When the, when the Apostle Paul was taken prisoner, he demonstrated that he knew the law of the land better than the officials who had him in custody. While standing before Festus, a Roman official, the following conversation took place. Quote, but Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favour, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? Then Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know, for I am an offender, for if I am an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I do not object to dying, but if there is nothing in these things which these men can accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. Acts chapter 25, verses 9 to 12. The Apostle Paul was a Roman citizen. He knew that he could appeal to Roman law, therefore, to receive a fair trial. Anyway, more fair than he had received so far. Besides, it kept him from being murdered in Jerusalem. Paul knew Roman law. He was not lawless or a rebel. Nevertheless, he used the law to the advantage of the kingdom of God. I believe that this is precisely what is happening in the Christian school battle. Families have appealed to Caesar, and most of the time, Caesar is ruling in their favour. Sure, there is opposition, and it is a constant battle, but this strategy is biblical and tried and true. When it stops working, we can try something else. The family can be protected. Each sphere has a role. The church is a guardian and provider. The state carries out the death penalty on the ones specified in God's word, thereby killing off the many attackers on the family. The family itself has legal recourse by knowing the law better than public school educated state officials. Summary. I started off by raising the question, who protects the family and how? The state and just about everyone else trying to protect the family are doing it the wrong way. Hence, the family goes unprotected. 1. I refer to the Karen Ann Quinlan case 
to show that the state reasons a certain way when it comes to protection, and anyone who wants to defend the family should take note of the issues. Two, then I discussed how each sphere of society is supposed to protect the family. A. The church, not the state, is assigned the role of helping widows and orphans, not the state. So, the church is the check and balance on education. If you remember at the first, I pointed out the dilemma that some think is created when state compulsory education laws are abolished. Who will fill the gap? The church has always had the greatest interest in literacy. Why? Christianity is a religion of the book. The better a person can read, the better he knows what God expects of him. Wherever Christianity has gone, therefore, literacy has followed. There is no literacy except where the Holy Spirit goes. The church is the best guardian of education. In fact, it is the only effective guardian. The state needs to get out of the way of the church if it wants a literate society. B. When I came to the sphere of the state, I emphasised the penal sanctions of the Bible. All capital offence crimes assault the family. C. Finally, the family defends itself by knowing the law of the land and using it to its advantage. Of course, the family should seek refuge in the church. After all, as the Quinlan case reveals, the church carries more clout than the individual. Ultimately, the future is at stake. When the family is attacked, the battle is for the children, and they represent the future. In the final principle, I want to consider this very important question. Who owns the children? How it is answered determines what happens to their future.